Amen. What a way to open the worship of God today that we have had already. Thank you, Brother Chris. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Brother Newell. You may open your Bibles with me to Psalm 119, where we shall first look in the Word of God at the subject that's before us, the grand subject of the attributes of the Lord God Jehovah. We have reached the end of this study, and we shall see if we can cover the last remaining relational attributes today. We're dealing with his relational attributes, and those are the character traits of the God of the Bible that are involved in the personal relationship that he has with his children, in the fellowship that he has with us, that we can have with him. There are a number of attributes that many overlook that may not be as his inherent attributes like omnipotence or invisibility or immortality. They may not be as dramatic in some respects as creation or providence, but they are nonetheless very special if you want to walk with God. If you want to have fellowship with God, these relational attributes are dear indeed. This week, I received an email, and I'd like to share it's very short. And no matter what the writer of the email had in mind, I hope that the words will have the same effect on you as they had on me. The subject line said, and I received this on Friday morning before five, I want to see my Creator. The body, please assist me to see my Creator. Have you ever wanted to crawl through the internet and get a hold of someone and show them things from His Word and go out and look at the sun come up? The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth His handiwork. This writer said, thank you for the good work you are doing. But listen, we haven't done our good work well enough if he wants to see his creator. I want to see my creator. I want you to see your creator. I want us to rejoice in our creator today. Relational attributes. We have a few to cover, so let's dive right into the first one. The God of the Bible, the Lord Jehovah, is a chastening God. He chastens his children. Now, when we think about this, let's look past the fact of, of the matter that he does chasten us. Let's look past the fear of his chastening because it can be severe. He actually uses in Hebrews chapter 12 that is overlooked by many, a particular device for punishment, and it's a scourge. A scourge was a very serious weapon of torture when you took called a cat of nine tails in Britain, when you took nine strands of leather, and you might even put in them some bits of metal, and then attach them to a wooden handle so that you could get some leverage and swinging power, and you could open up a man's back with a scourge. And that is what the Lord describes as his tool for chastening his children. But let's look, we don't want to look past, we don't want to look at the fear of that today. We want to look past that. We don't want to look at the profit of chastening. Chastening is for our profit, and that's a wonderful thing, and that's part of what we want to see. But we want to look at the fact that the God we worship chastens His children, and He chastens them for a very relational purpose. He chastens us in His loving desire for our growth rather than to desert us when we turn away from Him. Our sins, every time you sin, every time I sin, it's heinous. It's profane in the light of His kindness to us. We shouldn't ever sin in light of what we know about Him, in light of His salvation, and in light of His great goodness in our lives. And when we do, He should give up on us. He should turn away and disinherit us, like He often told Moses He was going to do with the children of Israel. But He doesn't. 
because he's a chastening God. He wants to maintain that relationship. And if that means bringing us back with a little persuasion, he'll bring us back. And that is part of the God we worship. And we want to be thankful for that. If you were God or I were God, and you gave me as much difficulty or I gave you as much difficulty as we give the Lord, do you know what you would do? You'd say, bye-bye, have a nice life without me. And without Him, there wouldn't be a nice life. We might think that we were going to have the nice life, but we wouldn't. You know, we may provide some love and some attention and some direction to those that we care about, but we give up rather easily when they get slothful or stubborn in their rebellion against us. It's not like that with the Lord Jehovah. Slow to anger. Plenteous in mercy. He will not chide nor hold his anger forever. He gets over it in the morning, if you will. Chastening is God's loving and rational choice and relational choice to continue a relationship with us in spite of our failures and faults, to perfect us as the foolish and wayward children, and to restore the fellowship that we had with Him before, to get it back again so we're walking with Him in peace and contentment. No cold war with the Lord. He wants to get it over with and settle matters and bring us back so that we're walking with Him again. What a glorious God we worship. Chastening is not the negative event of punishing the wicked, which He will do for eternity. Chastening is the loving attention that He gives His beloved children to bring them back so that there can be sweet fellowship in a family. When all of my children were home, I knew this. I don't think they agreed with me at the time. But the sweetest moments in the family's fellowship was immediately after discipline. Because the air was completely cleared. The parents were content that things had been dealt with properly. The children knew they didn't have to wait any longer for it because it had just happened. And the air was cleared and we could be in fellowship with one another. And it was sweet And it was precious. And some of those times, and they were painful while they were occurring, we would get together and go out for a little treat just to enjoy the fact that we were a family doing what God had told us to do. And that is the way it should be with the Lord. In Psalm 119, David well understood the chastening of the Lord. David sinned a number of times, and they're recorded in the Bible for us, that we might have consolation. That we can walk with God like David did and we can delight in the Lord like David did. And the Lord can delight in us like he delighted in David. In spite of sins. If we will confess and forsake our sins. David was guilty of aggravated adultery and murder. And yet, when the Lord chastened him for those sins and some of that chastening lasted his entire life, he could say this about the Lord's chastening. And our brother Zach loves this passage and he loves these verses. And you've heard them from him so many times, I could probably just say that and you know what I'm referring to. Verse 67 of Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. See, we go astray, then he afflicts us, then we're back. Then we keep his word. And when we're keeping His Word, Psalm 3 and every other condition and promise and offering that's made in the Bible becomes true for us. But it's chastening that helps get us there. And it's the Lord not deserting us or forsaking us. It's the Lord showing His love toward us. For whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And if ye be without chastisement, whereof all, that is, all children, are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. That's the, that's the language of the Lord God of the Bible. Amen. Either you're a son of God or you are a bastard. You are a rejected one. You are a reprobate. And the difference is, for you to look in your life, when you sin, can you get away with it for long? No. Thank you, Lord. Amen. That's His loving kindness toward us. Look at verse 71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. This is a good attribute of God that He chastens us. It's not a bad attribute. We want Him to chasten us. The Father that chastens His Son loves His Son. 
If he doesn't chasten his son, he hates his son. This is God showing his love to us. And it's a relational attribute because the purpose is, as soon as we sin, fellowship is broken. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Our praying gets no further than the paint in the room in which you're in when you pray. When you have sin in your heart, the, the, the fellowship is broken. You cannot have fellowship with Him that is light when you're walking in darkness, 1 John chapter 1. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how does He get us to confess our sins? A little affliction. A little chastening. We come to verse 75 here. I know, O Lord, that Thy judgments are right and that Thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. What you've done to me is right, it's good, and it's because you're faithful. And so chastening is an attribute of God. And it's an attribute of His that's relational in that it keeps, restores, and builds our relationship with God. He does not give up on us. He pursues us. As I ended with last Lord's Day in that second assembly. Thank you, Lord, for these things. David knew this in considerable detail. If you read Psalm 51, his prayer of confession, after sinning and adultery and murder, he spoke of the bones that God had broken and how dry he was and the joy of God's salvation had been taken from him. There can be no joy, spiritual Christian joy to a man in his sin. And so the Lord chastens us to give us joy again. It's grievous at the moment. But when we respond right to God's chastening, it results in joy and profit. Thank you, Lord, for being a chastening God. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, what I've referred to it, because it describes the benefits of God's chastening when we respond correctly. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 quotes from the book of Proverbs, where Solomon acknowledged the chastening of the Lord. And I've already quoted verses 6 through 8. Let's, and verse 9 describes our fathers in the flesh that chastened us. And we gave them reverence. Shouldn't we give God reverence for this trait of His? Because they verily, in verse 10, do it for their own pleasure, but He for our profit. A father truly chastens his son for that son's profit, but he also does it for his own pleasure because it's his own personal opinion of what his son should be. But God does it more for our profit than even a loving father can do. Verse 11. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. While you're getting it, it's not exciting. But grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. When God's chastening properly exercises us, it results in us living a righteous life and being at peace with God again. That's what I was referring to when I described having those family settings. Discipline in our home was done as a, done as a family. Because the Bible says, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. Why would you go hide it? I wanted the other six to get some benefits while I was beating the seventh. I hope you understand that. And there was benefit. The oldest one would break down bawling many times, and you know who that is, watching her little brothers get pounded. But you know the Bible says that. Beating in the Bible. You lay down before the judge in the presence of the people. The the nation would do it together. You know, it was done on pay-per-view television. Right so that you could watch it happen and get a residual benefit from it. But this, this is the verse that we want. If we're not exercised by God's chastening, then you don't know what I'm talking about. God's chastening is to drive us back to Him because it's His relational attribute. Though it's painful, it's evidence that we're one of God's elect. First Corinthians 11 says that there were many of them that were weak, many were sick, and many of them were already in the church cemetery. They slept in the Lord. But it says that God had chastened them that they would not be condemned with the world. Chastening is proof of God's love in our lives. By nature, we're the bastards. By nature, we follow the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. But he is going to overrule that nature 
first by regeneration and then by chastening to bring us back to him. Look in your Bibles at Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, let me approach this a different way and see if you like this approach to considering chastening as an attribute of God. He doesn't desert us. Although his desertion at times may be his chastening to see if we will chase him. He'll remind us of what it's like without him. But he's coming back to us. Praise his glorious name. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. This verse is explaining what it means to love your neighbor. It means if you love your neighbor, you're going to rebuke him. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise, no matter what difficulties may come with this, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. When you love someone and you see them doing something wrong, you are going to rebuke them because you want to stop them from doing something wrong so that they can please God and have a profitable, prosperous, successful life in the sight of God and men. So real love is rebuking. Real love is correcting. Real love is telling someone they're doing something wrong. Now, if that is our love toward a neighbor, can you make the connection and see that God treats us that way? So what He requires of us in loving a brother... And that's how a church should function. When a church sees another church member doing something wrong, they should go to that church member and tell them that it is wrong. That is real soul winning in the definition that the Bible gives of it in James 5, 19 and 20. The last two verses of James. My brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins. That isn't saving anyone from hell to heaven, because everyone in the book of James is already a beloved brother, born again, as the first chapter already told us. But that's true love. Now, if we're supposed to do that toward each other, God does it toward us. He will in any wise rebuke us, because He loves us. If He doesn't rebuke us, He hates us. And when you don't rebuke those that sin in your family or in this church... You hate them. Because real love wants their best. Real love wants them pleasing God. Look at Psalm 141 with me. Psalm 141 and the fifth verse. This is what David said about his loving neighbors. In the sense of Leviticus 19.17 that I just read to you. David said, Let the righteous smite me. It shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. David said, I want the righteous to smack me up. I want the righteous to smite me because I need their help in staying on the straight and narrow. And when they do it, it's not going to really hurt me. I'm going to be praying for them because that's a real loving friend. Now the Bible says that as it describes David's relationship to others. Do you believe that about God? And do you appreciate that attribute of His that He chastens us? If the Lord smite me, I'll count it a kindness. If David would count it a kindness from a brother, how much more should we count it a kindness from the God of heaven? Every time another man rebukes you or punishes you, it's tainted. It's corrupted with pride. It's corrupted with sin in his own life. It's corrupted with a measure of hypocrisy. But never with the Lord when he chastens us. You know, human parents may say this hurts me more than it hurts you as they proceed to discipline a child. I didn't always say that because I didn't really always believe it. This hurts me more than it hurts you. But I did understand the sentiment behind the words. But our God says that. Do you know that he says that in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 20? Jeremiah 31, 20, Is Ephraim my dear son? This is him judging Israel. 
under the nickname of Ephraim, one of the favorite names of God for Israel. Is Ephraim my dear son? Jeremiah thirty-one twenty. Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. God toward his church. He had to chasten them, but he said my bowels are troubled doing it. So when parents give that expression, it's scriptural. Because God as our Father is troubled in his bowels when he chastens us, but he does it for our relationship with him. That's an attribute. That's a relational attribute of God. He chastens. The gods of the heathen, you know, the Zeus and the Jupiter and the Aphrodite and Venus and all the rest of their idiotic, made-up, imagined, hallucinated gods don't have the traits of the glorious God of the Bible. They don't in loving affection come. They may in vengeance judge and they may in vengeance punish, but our God chastens with one specific goal in mind. That's His glory, our profit, and restored relationship. May we appreciate that about Him. The Lord Jehovah is also accountable. The God of the Bible is accountable. He is bound by His character. He's bound by His reputation. And He is bound by His words that He's given us in Scripture for our confidence and our leverage with Him in prayer. If you are in a relationship with another person and the other party isn't accountable like two articles of incorporation, like to a partnership agreement, like to a marriage covenant, you're in trouble. If you're in a relationship and the other party is not accountable, you are in trouble. Because they can do whatever they want to. They are not accountable. That is why in this church, we emphasize so heavily that dating or courting is a precursor to marriage. Therefore, you should never date or court anyone that doesn't meet the qualification of marriage, and that is an independent fear of the Lord. Because you don't want to marry someone that's not accountable. But if you marry someone that has an independent fear of the Lord, you have a spouse that is accountable to someone higher than you. You have greater leverage with them than you could ever lever off of love. Because guess what? When you have a struggle with a spouse... There isn't a whole lot of love involved. That's why you're having a struggle with them. But when they fear the Lord, then you have the leverage of that fear of the Lord. A wife can write her husband a note and appeal to Scripture, or a husband can remind his wife on the basis of Scripture. Or you can come into the house of God and have the pastor do your dirty work for you in restoring your relationship when you fear the Lord. That makes people accountable. And so we want to marry as high as we can in the scale of the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 31.30 teaches us that. Favor is deceitful. A woman that does things for you is very deceitful. There are cheap women in town that will do anything you want for a few dollars. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain because it's not a measure. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Now the Lord is accountable. In Genesis chapter 18... He is accountable to his character. And Abraham appealed to that. God's character is visible and obvious to men. And the more the men know about God, like Abraham did, because he was a friend of God's, he knew that he could appeal to God on this basis. Genesis chapter 18, Abraham and Sarah have just fed the Lord and two angels that came to his tent in the heat of the day. And the four of them, that is God, his two angels and Abraham, have approached the brow of the hill looking over Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord has said, should we tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And Abraham hears that he's going to burn up Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's got his nephew Lot down there in that city of Sodom sitting in the city gate on city council. And Abraham wants to save his nephew. Remember, in chapter 14, he took his 318 trained servants after four kings from Mesopotamia and defeated them to rescue his nephew Lot and his family. Verse 23 of Genesis 18, And Abraham drew near and said, This is not disrespectful or irreverent. This is knowing that God is accountable to his character. 
Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now when I read those three verses to you and you think of a man voicing those syllables to God, you think that's bordering on disrespect or blasphemy to question God that way. But it's not. This is the friend of God. Are you a friend of God? The friend of God knows what he is like and he is accountable to his character. No, he would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He would not treat them alike. And so you know the rest of this. Abraham continues to negotiate with the Lord and gets it down to ten. But there's only four that are even willing under duress to come out of the city of Sodom. The Lord saves Lot and his remaining family, even though there were not ten righteous, as Abraham had requested. Now look at Numbers chapter 14. God is also accountable to his reputation. God cares about his reputation. And a wise man will remember that when he prays. Moses did this often. The Lord God is accountable. You young girls, you have no idea how painful a marriage can be if you marry a man that doesn't fear the Lord. You have never, ever felt pain, nor can you even imagine the pain of what it will be like if you marry a man that doesn't fear the Lord. You have no idea. He will abuse you in various ways from the inside out. You will have no leverage with him. When he's angry at you, that means he's not in love with you at that moment. You are not going to appeal to his love for you to accomplish anything. You want to marry a man that fears the Lord. Then your pastor, other brothers in the church, your father, his father, the word of God, and you with a note in his lunch pail can have great leverage on him. Don't you settle for anyone that doesn't fear God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love the Lord God Jehovah. You'll then have it so easy in comparison. Numbers chapter 14, the spies have gone into Canaan and come back and ten of them have given an evil report and the nation doesn't want to take them because there's giants in there and the cities are walled up to heaven. Those are pretty tall walls that are walled up to heaven. And we were as grasshoppers in their sight and all the discouraging news that the ten spies gave and the people don't want to take the land. And so the Lord says to Moses, verse 12, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. I'll take these three million people that are belly aching and complaining about a land that I've prepared for them and I'll kill them all and I'll start over from you. Now, you know, if he'd been a pastor like Jonah, do you know what he'd have said? It's one word and two syllables. Amen. Jonah would have. And I understand both. Lord, help me to only understand Moses. Here's what Moses did, because Moses knew that God was accountable to his reputation. Abraham argued on the basis of God being accountable to his character. Now it's to his reputation. Verse 13, Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. For they have heard that thou, Lord, art among this people. That thou, Lord, art seen face to face. And that thy cloud standeth over them. And that thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud. And in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he sware unto them, therefore he hath slain them in the wilderness. That's a prayer. Lord, you delivered this nation out of the nation of the, of the Egyptians. If you'd killed them here in the wilderness, the Egyptians knew all about you. 
that you were the God of this people and they were your people, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire and all that, if you don't get them into the land of Canaan, your reputation is going to be ruined. You don't have the ability. You don't have the power. You couldn't get done what you had purposed to get done, which you communicated by me to Pharaoh, and they all know about it. I'm going to take them to the land of Canaan because it was given to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You say it sounds disrespectful. Oh, it works. And this isn't the only time. This is Moses reasoning with the Lord based on his accountability to his reputation. Even before people as foolish as the Egyptians, he was going to maintain his integrity that he was a great God and could save his people. But let's keep reading here. I finished at verse 16. Now look at verse 17. And Moses pursues his argument further by holding God accountable to his words. When God had revealed himself and his glory to Moses back in Exodus 33 and 34, do you remember? Moses said, I want to see your glory. And God said, no man can see me and live. But I'll, I'll hide you in a certain place and I'll, I'll put my hand over your eyes and I'll let you see my backsides. That's all you can handle. And the backsides were the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and long-suffering and forgiving. Amen. Okay? Moses had tucked that away and now it's time to use it. And that's why we memorize scripture so that we can tuck it away and then use it when it's appropriate. Right. Verse 17, Moses speaking to God, And now, after having argued that he's accountable to his reputation, now he's going to reason about his words. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Moses wrestled with the Lord and won, just like Jacob wrestled with the Lord and won, and Moses won, By holding God accountable for his reputation and for his words. I hope to remember that when you pray. In Malachi chapter 3.10, are you familiar with these words? Try me now herewith. The Lord dares men to try him. They hadn't been giving. They'd been robbing God in their giving. And so the, the prophet tells them, bring ye all the tithes, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith. Prove me. See, he's accountable. I'm going to say something. Prove me that I'm not a liar. Prove me that I have the power to give you a blessing that you can't receive. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Amen. Prove me. He's accountable. He holds himself accountable. He wants you to hold him accountable. He wants you to try him. He wants you to prove him. He dares you. Right. That's my God. Is he your God? Amen. I've proved him over the years. I've never found him to be wrong. Right. He can outgive the greatest giver. The greatest giver we know, and he's just one. You know, the widow woman that gave two mites was greater than R.G. Letourneau, but R.G. Letourneau was quite a man, and yet the Lord outgave him. Right. As we have said many times before. Come back a few pages to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai and Zechariah were the two prophets that God stirred up and sent to regathered Judah when they came back from Babylon. They were dilly-dallying around and not rebuilding the temple in the city, And so God raised up two particular prophets. The Bible tells us this very plainly, so that when you read the book of Haggai and Zechariah, you know the timing of these prophecies. It's after the Jews had come back from Babylon and were in Jerusalem looking at that heap of rubble and and taking their sweet time about building God's temple. But I I want to show you an example of God holding himself accountable again. 
in Haggai chapter 2, verse 15. And now I pray you. See, the whole lesson in the book is one. This temple is very important to me. Start building it. You're building your own houses, and you're living comfortably in them, but get to work on my house. And now I pray you, Haggai 2.15, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. He said, take your calendars and circle today. Circle today and draw an arrow backward, and you can write above it, poverty. From that circled day, draw an arrow forward and write prosperity. That's what he's saying. I'm accountable. I told you to consider your ways. You've considered your ways. You've made some changes. And now I tell you, mark today on the calendar. This day and upward, meaning backward. Backward from before a stone was laid. Before you got busy about my house... What was it like? Verse 16. Since those days were, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, when you looked in the field and you said, you eyeballed it and said, that's 20 measures. There were but 10. When one came to the press fat for to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, you say to your son, we must have 50, 50 in there in the wine press. There were but 20. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord, until I sent you Haggai, who got your attention. Consider now from this day and upward. Now see, it's the same day. It's just a different direction. One was upward in the calendar backward. The other is upward in the calendar forward. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Think about this with me, the Lord is saying. The seed is still in the barn. There is no way to know whether you're going to have a good harvest or not, because the seed hasn't even been put in the ground yet. Is the seed yet in the barn, the Lord asks? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth. You can't even see the buds. From this day will I bless you. When you choose to obey God, He's accountable. There are so many if-then promises in the Bible. You can circle it on your calendar and say, Before this, I was disobedient and I had these troubles. But I am going to commit myself to obey the Lord fully, and you can mark it. And the Lord will hold Himself accountable. And He wanted them to hold Himself accountable. Can you imagine every home in Israel on the refrigerator they had a calendar with a date circled. Whether they had refrigerators or not. You know, for you to have full assurance that He is going to give eternal life to His children, He swore with an oath in Hebrews chapter 6. God didn't have to swear because He is immutable. He cannot lie. But He wanted to give you two things that you could lay your hope on. One, He can't lie. Two, He swore with an oath. He's making himself accountable. And since he couldn't swear by anyone greater than himself, you know, when the Lord God comes into court, he says the same thing we do, except he words it this way. Surely, blessing, I will bless thee. Amen. Because he can't appeal to anyone higher than himself because he's as high as it gets. Praise his glorious name. He is accountable. Do you know how accountable he is? If you're going to do something serious, I would advise you to do it in writing. I would suggest that you do important things in writing. And we all do that. We know that. We want a will that's in writing. We don't want a brother and a sister arguing against each other. Well, I heard him say this. Well, I heard him say that. He said he wanted me to get it all and you to get nothing. You know, we want it in writing. And so we put it in writing. And you know what the Bible says about this book? That this book is more sure than hearing his voice from heaven. Peter heard his voice from heaven in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Peter describes this word, the written word of God that came from 40 different writers as being more sure than God's voice from heaven. That's how accountable our God is. I'm thankful to have an accountable God. Now if you do what he commends, he'll bless you. If you do what he commends, he is also accountable and he puts it this way, be sure your sin will find you out. But my preaching isn't to be negative. 
So that's all I'm going to do is mention that to you, just to remind you that His accountability works in both directions. Our God is reasonable. He's impassable. That's a theological word that you never need to remember again. He's not ruled by His emotions, so you can know Him. You know, emotional people aren't very well known, though they're very visible and very obvious when they're in a room or on the telephone, due to their emotional and unreasonable swings. You don't know them very well because you can't trust them. You don't know what's going to come out of them at any particular time or situation. But our God is reasonable. He's logical and He's objective. And that is what makes holy reasoning and prayer trustworthy and workable. You know unreasonable persons and you can't talk to them. The servants of Nabal said of him, and they said this to his wife, Abigail, you know the son of Belial, a man can't talk to him. Ever met somebody like that? We've met them. You can't talk to him. That's not our God. You can talk to our God because he's reasonable. Do you know what he would say to his church in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18? Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as snow. But he says it all on the basis of, come, let's reason together about it. He is so reasonable, and I'm thankful for that. If you've had to grow up around a very emotional, Nabal-like person, you know that they can't be trusted because you don't know what they're going to be like at any moment in time. I wish that I was a little more reasonable at all times. You know, intensity can result in a little bit of unreasonableness at times, but the Lord is very reasonable. And we want to be thankful for that. The Bible's filled with, if, then I will. If, then I will. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, are chap- whole chapters. You should go through them with a red pen and just circle the ifs. The if-then conditions of God's blessing upon His people. You know, there were wicked men in Ezekiel chapter 18 that said about God, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They were accusing God of being unfair, that they were a righteous people and it was their wicked daddies that were causing the trouble in Ezekiel's day of God's judgment upon Judah. But the Lord gets to the end of Ezekiel chapter 18 he says, Are not my ways equal, saith the Lord, and your ways are unequal. Right. Because he's reasonable. And he spent the whole chapter saying, if a son will be righteous and obey me, I'll bless him. But if a son wants to be foolish and disobey me, I'll judge him. My ways are equal. My ways are not unequal like your ways are. He teaches in Ezekiel 18, the Bible says, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. God doesn't ask us to believe anything or to do anything that is unreasonable. Faith is the most reasonable basis for believing in the world. We have the only logical presuppositions in our philosophical thinking of anyone. And it's our religion, based on the fact that God is. You know, this world and their philosophy starts that God isn't. Then what does it start with? Their own imagination. And so they can come up with big bangs and monkeys as granddaddies, and everything else they come up with. Because they reason from nothing. But the Bible doesn't reason from nothing. The Bible reasons from intelligent design. I don't even like those words. Because it's the creative design of the Lord Jehovah. And that's where we start. He is so reasonable. And He expects us to understand that. The great God has given us more than sufficient evidence to believe that He is. And that he has eternal power. And that he has a Godhead. And that he rewards those that diligently obey him. Look at Job 38. Job 38. God is reasonable. Our God is reasonable. He's not running off on whims like the gods of the Greeks. The gods of the Romans. Job 38 verse 3. Gird up now thy loins like a man. This is the Lord speaking to Job. For I will demand of thee and answer thou me. We will debate this matter out and it will be based on reasonable discussion and I'll show you what I'm like and then you tell me that you still want to hold me in question for what I've done to you. And you know what those chapters are like. 
God just starts appealing to the horse and the ostrich and the any, everything else that he could think of and the wind and the rain and the hail and the snow and the lightning and the thunder. By the time he gets done, Job just... I don't have anything to say. Very reasonable though. I've done this and I've done this. Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? Now shut up. Don't tell me I'm not being fair with you. And that was loving. Sometimes it's loving to say that. That's Job 38.3. Look at Job 40 and verse 7. It took Job a while to get the lesson. He was a slow learner, but if maybe if you'd had all the pain that he had in his life, you'd be slow as well. Let's just be fast this morning. Job 40 and verse 7, Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. You say to me, that sounds like the one you just read. Yes, but it's twice in the Bible, so I'll read it twice to you. Because it's the same lesson. God was very reasonable and Job was the one being unreasonable. Isaiah 41. I've already mentioned the 40s in the book of Isaiah to you today. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible when it comes to philosophy. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. This is the Lord God saying, I'm ready for a debate. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. You know, when you debate, when you debate men on earth, you're hoping that they'll forget their strong reasons because you want to beat them. And to help you and assist you in beating them, you want them to forget some of their better arguments in the heat of the battle of a debate or discussion. But not the Lord. The Lord wants you to bring your best because He's still going to beat you. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. Let them bring them forth. And He goes on and describes you're going to end up being nothing because I'm going to show you who's right and there's none like me in all the earth. That's our Lord. He's very reasonable. I'm thankful for that. Look at 1 Samuel 12, 7. 1 Samuel 12, 7, when Samuel took Israel aside and and had a little talk with them because they came to him and said, we don't want you to judge us anymore. We want a king. Philistines have a king. Egyptians have a king. We want a king. The Lord told Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Oh, for a nation. Can you imagine a governmental system? It's as simple as having Samuel reign over the land. How big of a bureaucracy is that? How expensive is it? 1 Samuel chapter 12. This is Samuel. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. You haven't had a king since we came out of Egypt. Now stand still and listen to me. And let me reason with you of all the righteous acts of the Lord and how he's treated you. Why do you need a king? Our Lord is reasonable. Other verses could be turned to. My fourth trait, my fourth attribute that I want to give you this morning is our God is dependable. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. In the inherent attributes that we covered weeks and weeks ago, He is immutable, meaning He doesn't change. He cannot change. In the transferable attributes, we saw that He was faithful, and we're supposed to be faithful in the duties that God's given us. But I want to look a little closer at this faithfulness and trustworthiness and reliability and dependability. You know, when we meet someone that's not very dependable and they don't show up when they're supposed to and they don't do what they say they're going to do and we have to remind them all the time, it's not a very good relationship. But you don't have to do that with the Lord God. He remembers everything that he's promised. He never forgets a single aspect of it. He's committed his memory to remember certain things and never to remember certain things. Do you like that? If a person says they've forgiven you, but they're not very dependable, what can you count on someday in the future when it gets a little tense? You're going to have some dirty laundry brought up. But the Lord has said that he doesn't have a memory of our sins. But he says that he does have a memory of every good thing we've ever done. He is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. Hebrews 6.10 What their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. How's that? Do you like that? That is dependable. And this is the God of truth that says those kind of things. He is the faithful God. Moses 
said of him in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, He is the faithful God. David and others called God their rock. How much does a rock change? You know, we may say of a man, that man's a rock. You, you want to bet on that? You know, if we bring a few little trials into his life, he'll show that he's not much of a rock in comparison to our rock. God our rock. And the Bible says that he is our fortress. David knew that God was a fortress. A fortress isn't moved. A fortress is a safe place and a place of refuge. And the Bible says God is our confidence. Don't put your confidence in princes. Put your confidence in the Lord. Jeremiah and his lamentations about the fate of Judah said his compassions fail not. His mercies are new every day. He, great is thy faithfulness. In Lamentations chapter 3. This is our God. Very faithful. Very dependable. You can trust Him. You can rely on Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Our God is dependable. If you confess your sins, He does not forgive you by feelings. He does not forgive you by circumstances. He forgives you by faithfulness and justice. That is the strongest foundation for your forgiveness. His faithfulness to His own covenant that is in Christ Jesus. His justice that your sins have already been paid for by the blood of Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You can depend on Him to forgive you. Don't doubt Him. Or you are calling in question the attribute of His dependability, His trustworthiness, His faithfulness. When you confess your sins, believe that you are forgiven and get up and go forward in your duties of that day. If you hesitate, if you wonder where are the feelings of forgiveness, I have preached this already in this series, you are looking somewhere other than faith. You are looking somewhere other than God's dependability and His faithfulness for your forgiveness and you're wrong. And you're going to be plagued all the days of your life. Believe the Word of God. You say, well, how can it be that easy just to say, God, I have sinned. I have perverted that which is right and it profited me not. Forgive me and have mercy upon me. How can it be that easy? I'll tell you how easy it is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung on a cross and He stood in Pilate's judgment hall and Herod's judgment hall and He was abused and He poured out His life. It wasn't easy. And when you think that you should be giving something more than just confessing your sins, you cast questions upon what Jesus Christ did for you in hanging on the cross. He said it is finished and you don't add one thing to it. He is dependable. The Bible says, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. That's referring to two men. A friend loveth at all times. We're not fair weather friends. We better not be. Right. A friend loveth at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. You know the reason you exist, the reason I exist, if we're Jonathan and David's, I've got your back. I'll never forsake you. Right. No matter how difficult the times might be, I will defend you. And I will be there. But you know, if the, if the Bible can inspire those words about two men, and Abraham was said to be the friend of God, what may we draw from that? A friend loveth at all times. Is the Lord dependable? Could Abraham trust the Lord? Right. Absolutely. Can you trust the Lord? Yeah. Oh, most definitely. And he has said to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look at Hebrews 13. I'm about, I'm about finished. Hebrews 13. That's where he said it. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Look what it should result in. Verse 5 of Hebrews 13. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Your lifestyle should be a contented one. Not a covetous one. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. On what basis? Why should I be content with what I have? I don't have very much. 
For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. If you have the Lord, who cares what you've got? You've got the greatest thing in the universe. You are richer than all men. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Therefore, God's promise to always be with us and to never leave us, the Lord Jesus Christ's promise, and his dependability at keeping that should make us content. Because it doesn't matter what we have. But it does more than that. Verse 6. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. It also gives us courage. When you are walking with God, and you know that He is never going to desert you, it gives you contentment because you don't need anything else. Because He is your portion and your cup in this life, and you are not afraid of anything. As we heard earlier today from Psalm 3, because he gives you courage. Right. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Why? Because the Lord is with them. Remember Psalm eighteen twenty nine. David said, By my God I have run through a troop, and I have leaped over a wall by my God. Amen. Psalm eighteen twenty nine. You can run through those 10,000 of men. David did it, literally. David took on Goliath. David took on numerous armies and won great victories because the Lord was with him. Right. He is Dependable. When you, when you are called to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, do you have someone that you can depend on? The doctor is not dependable. Your spouse is not very dependable. They might be there and they might still love you, but they're not going to help you. And they're going to disappear from sight as you step through that dark curtain. But I can tell you someone that will be there. And he is dependable. Right. Yea, And David walked this valley many times. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. This is sermon number 43. I have preached one of my favorite subjects to you over the last few months. What are you going to do with it? Do you delight in the Lord your God, like the Bible says? Delight thyself also in the Lord? Do you glory in him like Jeremiah describes? Or are you glorying in your education? Or are you glorying in your riches? Or are you glorying in your strength, your athletic ability? Three things that men often glory in that the Bible makes fun of in that passage and says, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me. Amen. Do you boast in the Lord? Let us make our boast of him together. Let us boast of the Lord's greatness. The Bible uses that word. I've gone all over all this before. It's earlier in this outline that I just want to remind you of right now. Are you full of joy? And is He your great and exceeding joy? Do you rejoice in God? Are you glad in serving Him? Do you have the voice of triumph when you talk about Him? Do you take pleasure in Him? Is meditation of Him sweet to your soul? If these things aren't true, I've failed in preaching to you. I'll be held accountable for my part, but you're going to be held accountable for your part as well. Do you delight, glory, boast, rejoice, are glad, triumph, take pleasure, and find Him to be sweet? The great God of the Bible. The God that we've come into this house today to worship. How do you treat a thing in which you delight and you glory in it? You want to know as much about it as possible. If you'd asked me when I was 16 years old, any performance statistic or construction statistic of a Kawasaki three-cylinder Mach 500cc motorcycle, because I craved one so badly, I could have quoted anything to you, because I love that stupid rice-burning piece of Japanese junk. Isn't that pitiful? Have you ever met somebody that loves baseball, and now they can tell you all these different players' baseball statistics? When you love something, you want to know everything you can possibly find out about it. I hope you've enjoyed considering all sorts of different aspects about the Lord God of the Bible. You want to share it with other people. You know, I want to tell anybody. See that Honda 750? Whip its rear end. Always. Comparisons. But see, we've got a God that has no comparison. We can compare Him to any God of the heathen. He has an answer. He has a solution. He has the truth. He has the power. 
for any situation. We can always rejoice in Him. We should be speaking of Him often one to another, like the Bible tells us, so that our names are put in His book of remembrance. So that our names are put in His book of remembrance. You want to protect it from any evil report and defend it against those that lightly esteem it. Let's defend our great God. Let's shut down anyone that speaks against God. Let's not allow any vain use of His name. Let's not let there be any jokes about the God of heaven. Do you know God? Do you love Him? Do you delight in Him? Do you glory in Him? Do you rejoice in Him? Is He your gladness? Is He your portion? Is He your cup? Are you content no matter what as long as you have Him? You want to avoid any personal behavior that would offend Him or corrupt His reputation to others. So let's live for the God that we know. Let's live for the God that has chosen to reveal Himself to us. You want to be around this thing that you might love and consider it as often as possible to maximize your pleasure. We should want to be in the house of the Lord every opportunity we have. We should want to read His Word every day. Are you reading His Word every day so that you can get a taste of Him again? For those of you that are reading through the Bible, isn't the book of Genesis, though though you may have read it a hundred times, isn't it still wonderful? He's the God of Noah. He's the God of Seth. He's the God of Enos. He's the God of Enoch. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Do you know Him? Are you living for Him? Are you the happiest person on the street today? Are you the happiest person in this congregation today because you know Him? Is He your joy, your cup, your portion? Is He your all in all? Is He your exceeding great reward? May the Lord bless us to not only to have heard this series, but to love the God that it was about. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.